I want to share a text with you today from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. So turn in your Bibles there, if you will. This is a message. If you've been a longtime member of Meadowbrook, this is one that we circle back to every three or or so years. It's important to do so as we near Easter and Passover, which is coming up on Friday. It's a good opportunity for us to reflect And think about historically the big picture of the Old Testament and how Christ has fulfilled all those great words that were spoken about him. So let's look to Matthew chapter 26. I want to begin in verse 17 and move through verse 20. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said... Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who teaches it to us. Thank you for Jesus who fulfills it. Now we pray that we'd be receptive to every aspect of it. Give us reminders of historical truth. Give us encouragement in our present situation and give us hope for the future. In this text, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, Passover is Friday and it is a meal that will be celebrated by many of our Jewish friends And as they are celebrating that meal together, that particular day, they are reminded of God's sovereignty, of his justice, and of his mercy, and of his redemption, specifically for the people of Israel as they were enslaved in Egypt, and he came to rescue them from that. And the meal actually is one of those that God has put in order in that his history with them might be retold generation after generation. So it's meant to be not only a gathering and a celebration together, the freedom that the people of Israel have from their slavery, but it's meant to be a historic reminder. It's an unfolding, if you will, of history that is certain to be understood by every generation. Now, the meal retells of the redemption of God for Israel. It tells of the faith that they had as they were baptized in the waters of the Red Sea, passing through on dry ground. It points to God's goodness and his promises that are fulfilled for them. And even though the Passover is a historical recounting for Israel's redemption, for us, it is a reminder that God told us throughout history, that his Messiah would be coming, the Redeemer would come, and that Christ Jesus has fulfilled all the illusions that have been presented throughout history through the Passover. Christ has come, and he has established our redemption. He's established our freedom from sin and from death and from judgment. And so for you and me, Passover is not just a historical sense. Passover is a present reality for Jesus is our Passover. So we're going to celebrate that on Friday and we're going to carry that all the way through the weekend as Easter is approaching next Sunday. Now the Passover meal, as God instructed for Israel to to have it, is found in Exodus chapter 12. I won't ask you to turn there today. But the meal, as God instructed, had three parts to it. And you'll find that in verse 8 of the 12th chapter of Exodus. 
It's the Lamb of God that was uh, being pointed to by the unblemished lamb that was going to be served. It's the matzah, the unleavened bread that would also be served, and the bitter herbs that God had instructed Israel to eat on that night as the, the death angel would be moving through Egypt. The lamb, as you know, was to be without blemish. During the initial Passover, that, bl- that lamb's blood had been let, and the the doorways and the lentils of the home of the people of Israel where they were living in Egypt were to be painted with the blood of that lamb. That blood was to be applied by the instruction of God and the people were to do so with great faith that God would protect them as he saw the blood. He would protect them and judgment would pass right over them. Of course, when Peter and John were preparing for this final Passover event with Jesus, as Matthew instructed us, They would have killed the lamb and skewered it. Commonly, a spear of pomegranate wood would be thrust vertically through the lamb and then also horizontally through the lamb so that it could be easily roasted and maneuvered in its roasting so that it could be eating. Of course, throughout that process, you and I would know if you've got a spear vertical and one that's horizontal, it's in the form of a cross. And that's not by chance that it was traditionally served in that way, cooked in that way. It's all pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the perfect Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. And God instructed the people of Israel on that first night to have bitter herbs. And the bitter herb most commonly used today is horseradish or maybe parsley. The parsley might be dipped in salt water, but it was really that horseradish that that gives the, the tears. Anybody eat horseradish around here? <laughs> Some of you just have no taste buds and you have to really ignite in order to get flavor. Horseradish doesn't just hit the tongue, does it? It, it hits all through the sinus cavities and it can open you up like the best pseudoephedrine that you could ever buy on the market today. And it doesn't just open you up, but it causes your tears to flow, doesn't it? And that's the point. The bitter herbs were to remind the people of Israel that they had a bitter time enslaved and their tears would flow and their cries would go out to God and that God had heard their cries and those herbs were to remind them of that. But not just that, it was matzah as well and as you know matzah is unleavened bread. Uh, it is unleavened, meaning it's without yeast, because throughout Scripture in the majority of times, yeast is pointing to sin in one's life and how it can permeate in one's life and actually permeate a congregation when you allow sin to reign within the individuals of the congregation. So God said, I want you to have unleavened bread, because you're not going to have time for the, for the bread to rise. K is in this, this little arena of her life where she's baking homemade bread. I am not complaining. Uh, We haven't bought uh, bread in a bag in a long time, in a number of years. And I was cutting some yesterday and making a sandwich out of it. But she has to go through a process for this sourdough to rise up. And, And everything is about the rise for her. If the rise isn't good, the bread's not good to her. But God said to Israel, I don't want you to wait around. I don't want you to wait for that dough to rise. In fact, I want you to eat unleavened bread. In fact, he commemorated an entire week called the week of unleavened bread, the festival of unleavened bread. And it coincides right there linked together with 
with what we have as Easter and the Jewish people in this time had as Passover. And they would go through the house and they would make sure all the leaven is gone. There's no bread in the house with leaven in it. They wanted to make sure that everything was gone. Like spring cleaning, you got to get the sin out of your life. And God is saying on this night, the night of Passover, you should eat standing. Have your staff in your head, hand. Don't even wait for the bread to rise because I'm coming and my judgment is coming. And you need to be ready for me to redeem you. So all of that is pointing ultimately to Jesus. That that bread represent him. In fact, later he would say, this is my body broken for you. Now, the manishtana is the process by which the entire seder, seder is moved through. It's a series of four questions that are asked which is really rounded from a greater question that is being asked about the night of Passover as they're sitting down together for a meal. And the question that is being asked over the entire meal is what makes this night special from all other nights? Now that one question is going to launch in four questions throughout the meal, the Passover meal. And as those four questions are being asked by the youngest able person at the table, the father, the one that's leading the, the meal, is going to answer the questions. Now, as tradition unfolds and rabbinical teachings somewhat change, the questions might be uh, changed throughout history, but they basically go in this order. On this night... We only eat one kind of bread. On other nights, we eat all kinds of bread. I, I have a family that loves bread. Cheese bread, dipping bread, peanut butter and jelly bread. It doesn't matter. My family loves bread. Yeast rolls, homemade biscuits. We love all the stuff that Cafe 59 serves out there that's bready. We like that. So on this night... It's different because we only eat matzah. Why is this night so different? And that would be answered. And on this night, unlike other nights, we only eat bitter vegetables. Why is this night different? And at other meals, we might dip twice or three times or four times. Why is it that we dip only two times on this night? And on this night, we recline at table why is this night different in that we recline at table? Now, the father, the leader of the, the Seder would begin to answer those. Well, our ancestors could not wait on the day in which they were redeemed. And so they couldn't wait for the bread to rise when they were fleeing slavery. And the bitter herbs remind us of the bitter tears that we experienced when we were in slavery. And we first dip into the salt or perhaps the matzah into the horseradish to symbolize the tears that flowed in our slavery and in our bondage. And the second, the horset, is that sweetness reminding us that God had given us sweetness out of bitterness. And then while we eat most of the time seated, tonight we eat reclined. And it's because in the ancient times, slaves ate standing and those who were free reclined at table. And it's a reminder to us that God has set us free. 
I kind of like the idea of reclining at table. How about you? Traditionally, the Passover meal is divided into four sections, not just with four questions, but four sections of the meal, each with a cup of wine. One cup drank four times throughout the night. The original instructions of the Bible do not mention wine, but it is traditionally given that wine is drank. The origins of that is not really known. The, Bish the Mishnah which is a writing of the traditional oral teachings of the rabbis, talk about the division of the meal, and which is with every cup is a new division of the meal. I'm pretty sure that Jesus and his disciples followed that tradition because in the New Testament, two of the four cups are mentioned that Jesus actually participated in, or at least it was alluded to. So I, I'm certain that Christ was following the traditions that pointed to him. Now, the fulfillment of the promises of redemption are listed for us throughout the scriptures, but they were first mentioned in the sixth chapter of Exodus. When God was preparing the people about what he was going to be doing and freeing them and redeeming them, and, and I'll just refer back to that or watch it on the screens or it's in your handout. In the sixth chapter of Exodus, it says, Say therefore to the people, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So four times in that passage, God is making statements about what he's going to do. And he says to the people of Israel before this great act of Exodus, he says, I'm going to bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I am going to deliver you from slavery and I will do it with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment and I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Those are four promises that God established and fulfilled. Now, ultimately, we know that this is what Christ has done for us throughout all eternity, that God has done that and given that great gift to us, the Redeemer has come. But I want to just walk you through those four cups, if you will. And in the third cup, we're going to pause and we're going to participate in communion because that's the point in the meal which Christ did the very same thing. Now, if you're saved and you follow through with obedience to Christ and you've examined yourself and you have confessed sins before him who is faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you of unrighteousness, then I would invite you to join with us in communion. The elements are already in the seats in front of you. And if you're in a place where we don't have those in front, someone will be bringing them to you. But we'll do that in a few moments. I want to mention the first cup, which is the cup of sanctification and here in the meal, the father would begin telling, recounting the plagues that God brought on Egypt as he was bringing his judgment against a very wayward and rebellious people. And the 10th plague, as you know, is the, the worst of all. It was the death of the firstborn among all those in Egypt. God offered mercy to those who would act in faith by killing a spotless lamb and placing the blood on the home 
And as the death angel would pass through on that night where the blood was applied by faith, the people would not experience God's judgment. That's a good indicator about what our salvation was going to be. It would be by faith and it would be by the shedding of blood. God had established that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And seeing the blood on the doorway, that death angel would not execute judgment on those in that house. And that would be recounted. It's in that part of the, the Seder that the second ceremony of the evening would unfold. And it, it is the washing of hands. One family member would take a, a pitcher of water and pour it into a basin and offer a towel to everyone there at the table. And the water would be poured upon the hands in order to ceremonially wash them. Now, there's no soap involved. This is not cleansing your hands because you've got dirt under your nails. This is a ceremony. This is indicative of, of being clean before God for the people of Israel. It was at that point in the ceremonial washing of hands that Jesus actually took off his outer clothing. And he took that towel and he wrapped it around his waist. He girded himself. And he took that basin of water and he began to, one by one, just go to the disciples. And he would wash their feet. Remember, Peter was just so, in, so perplexed by that, so overwhelmed by the fact that Christ himself would be stooping to wash his feet. And he was like, no, 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 please don't wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, look, if I don't wash you, you will not be clean. What Jesus is pointing to ultimately there is that he is the suffering servant who alone could cleanse. But there's also a challenge in that part for the disciples, all the followers of Jesus Christ. In his object lesson, he is stating who he is. He's the suffering servant, but he's challenging them. Look in John chapter 13. And when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garment and resumed his place and said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so I am. And I then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you let me just state it with bluntness Jesus requires humility and service of his followers to one another it's required he demands it of us not only does he do it for us but he demands that we do it to one another. And if you remember, the disciples were really, had been bickering and arguing about their own exaltation. Who among them is going to be the greatest? And Jesus is telling them in a number of different ways, you've got it all wrong. The greatest is not the one who sees himself exalted. The greatest is the one who humbles himself and serves. And certainly Jesus is the greatest of all servants. Genuine love is evident, he's saying, when your attitudes and your actions are demonstrated in service to one another. Listen, it's one thing for us as a congregation to say, I love you to one another. It's another thing for us to serve one another in love. And that's what he's calling the disciples to do. That's what he calls you and me to do. 
In fact, I would go as far as to say that we are to serve one another more than we long to be served. Boy, let that just settle in for a minute. Because the culture of the world loves to be served. I like to be served in a restaurant. I like to be served in the barber shop. I like to be served in other places. But here's what Jesus is saying. As long as you like to be served, you ought to long to serve others more. Could I reframe it for us as a church? This whole life as a church, it is meant to be that you and I would give to the church more than we receive from the church. Now, somewhere in time, this thing got jumbled up. And church began to be about what it could do for you, the programs it could offer you, the benefits that you could have by being to church. And I'm not saying that those things are not true, but you and I in the nature of Christ ought to be saying, let me not be so concerned about what the church can do for me. Let me do for the church. And in doing so, I will show my love for Christ and his people. Everybody here, everybody here ought to be doing more for Meadowbrook than Meadowbrook does for you. I pray that would be true for me. That I would give to you more than you give to me, and you give to me a lot. So Christ is calling for us to serve one another. In fact, Peter says it later, as you've received a gift, use it to serve one another. And in doing so, we are being good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's the revealed grace of God to us. We're being good managers of that. Now look at the second cup. The second cup is the cup of deliverance. And this is really where the main course is being served. On some occasions of this message, I've actually roasted leg of lamb. Uh, decided that 9 o'clock in the morning was probably not the best time for us to have roast leg of lamb. Uh, but maybe Friday you, you can have roast leg of lamb. And it would be in that main course of the dinner that uh, the friends and the family would recount God's redemption among Israel. Now, in the midst of that, uh, bread is served, the unleavened bread, the matzah is served. And something just absolutely amazing happens in the midst of that. Uh, this is a matzah, matzah tosh, and it is... Uh, a cover, if you will, for the bread. And in the midst of this, there are three compartments with three loaves or three pieces of matzah bread. In the middle of the meal, the father who is leading the meal would, would take that middle matzah. Let me see if I can make sure I'm getting the right one here. And he would take that out and he would break it. Just break it in half. And he would take a, a linen cloth and he would wrap that. It's called the afikoman. He would wrap that in a linen cloth and he would run through the house and he would hide it somewhere. And as it is hidden, he would call out to the kids, okay, you can go in the house and you can try to find that afikoman. If you find it, you bring it back to me. And when you bring it back to me, the one who does, I'll give you a gift. I'll give you a prize. And can you imagine after dinner the kids scurrying out to find that afikoman, that piece of bread that was somewhere hidden. And, of course, when they brought it in, it, it, 
it revealed that they had found, they had discovered that bread and a gift was given. It's in that time that Jesus is taking that bread, John, the youngest of the disciples, right by him. I don't know if John went and scurried throughout the upper room. But at this moment, Jesus, as that bread is returned back to him, began to take it and break it and pass it to all 12. In fact, he would say, it's the one who dips that bread and eats with me that will betray me. It's pretty interesting because that context is the point where Jesus tells them, this is my body it's broken for you. It's in that tradition that Jesus is telling the disciples, as he had many times, that his body would be broken, he would be nailed to a cross, he would be wrapped in linen, he would be hidden in the, in the earth in a tomb, only to be discovered later. It was in that point that in the traditional meal of Passover that Jesus was being highlighted. Listen to the blessing, the traditional blessing that will be pronounced Friday by Jewish people all over the world as they celebrate Passover. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Imagine that. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is sacrificed his body like bread that is hidden away and God bringing forth that bread in order to satisfy our deepest hunger. Jesus, his great teaching of the Last Supper helps us to understand what he had told in John chapter 12, which by the way is in the midst of the same night, the same teaching which Jesus gives. If you want to know what all Jesus taught, John gives multiple chapters of that teaching of the Passover night. But here's one of them. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies and remains alone, but if it dies, it bears forth much fruit. So this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be laid in the ground, but when I resurrect, I will bring much fruit, much life. Even holding the bread reminds us, does it not, of Christ our Lord? In an effort to make sure that the bread doesn't rise, it is pierced. This is matzah that will be served all over the world. Just like this, it's pierced as Christ Jesus was prophesied about to be pierced by his stripes. We are healed as it's put on the oven racks, the striping occurs. And of course, they looked upon him as Zechariah says, in whom they had pierced in Psalm 22, that great prophetic messianic text which describes the Lord's crucifixion. They pierced my hands and feet. Even holding the bread reminds all of us of great, the great sacrifice of Christ. But then comes that third cup, the cup of redemption. Remember, each cup is reminding them about the promise of God that was fulfilled by God. And the third promise is, I will redeem you with outstretched arms. In that moment, it is significant that Christ would be our redeemer. 
in just a moment, you're going to hold the cup that bears the fruit. In a way, it's our third cup, the cup of redemption. Through the redemption of Christ on the cross, you and I are rescued from our bondage to sin and death, and we are freed from God's judgment by faith. Jesus, the great Redeemer, bore our burden of sin on the cross. He bore our judgment that God had placed against us, and rightfully so, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That third cup is the reminder of that. On that night of Passover, the last supper in which the Lord had with his disciples, he took that third cup, the cup of redemption, and he explained that this cup is really about him. I think there's probably a good opportunity for us to pause and let the worship ministry share those words in song because we're so thankful for the blood, the cup of redemption, which Jesus Christ fully satisfies. Listen to the words of this song and engage deeply in your heart as you reflect before we have communion together.
Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again, Jesus said, the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'd like it, if you will, to take those elements in your hand if you're participating in the communion service. As you hold that cup in your hand, that cup reminds you of the new covenant of God that had been established by Christ Jesus for our salvation. One of the ways in which covenants between two parties were offered and accepted was by the pouring and receiving of a cup of wine. For example, a marriage proposal in Jesus' today, in Jesus's day had three components. There was the marriage contract or the covenant that was being made. 
that was the price, the bride price that was being negotiated, and there was a cup of wine. A groom in the family would present the marriage contract or the covenant with the prospective bride and her father with the understanding of the bride price required. And when the offer was made, the groom would pour a cup of wine and place it there before his beloved, waiting for her father to take that cup. And if he took that cup and drank of it, then the proposal had been accepted and the couple were then betrothed. Leaving, the young man would announce, I am going to prepare a place for you and I will come again and I'll take you unto myself. While preparing the dwelling place for the bride, the bride's maids and the bride would ready themselves and watch for his coming again. There's a covenant represented in this third cup of the Passover. Jesus has poured the cup. He knows what the price of the bride is. It's his own life. It's his own blood. And he willfully offers that cup, the cup of redemption, to his disciples and to all who one day would follow him. And upon receiving it and drinking of it by faith, we receive what he has offered to us graciously. So this third cup, the cup of redemption, mindful in your hand right now about what Christ has offered to us and given to us, what God the Father has provided so generously. We receive it, for the Lord has offered his own life and blood for us, and he makes a promise and that he has gone to prepare a place for us and that he would come again and take us to himself, that where he is, there we may be also. So we take of this cup as a reminder. We take of this cup by faith of today, and we take of it that he is coming again. Now, Father, as we hold the elements, both the unleavened bread and the cup in our hand, we pause to say thank you. We do so with a remembrance of how costly it was for you and your son, your spirit to give such an opportunity for us. We thank you for the faith that you have poured out that we might receive that gift. And Lord, as we reflect back on what you have provided in Christ and the way it changes us today, the attitudes that we're to have and communicate with other people with love and servitude and for the hope of the future that is to come and that the Lord is coming again for his own. We say thank you. With gratitude, we take this bread and this cup with great faith. In the blessed name of our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Let's take of those elements together. The fourth cup is the cup of acceptance. It's the cup that Jesus said he would not drink until we were in the Father's kingdom together. 
I want to remind you that the Lord is coming again, not just for his church, but he's coming to rule and reign on earth. And when he does, the kingdom of the Father will be present. For a thousand years, he will reign on the earth. And in that glorious time, Israel will come and will gather with the saints there in Jerusalem. And we will know Christ the Redeemer as one body. That's the acceptable time, isn't it? It's the time in which Christ himself is longing to have with his people. All people of faith, of all races, of all nations, of all tongues, people of faith gathered together in the kingdom of God. It is the cup of acceptance that Jesus is waiting for. And he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until then. Now that gives us opportunity, doesn't it? To extend an invitation. To say, come to Christ. Accept his offer of grace in this period of redemption while there is time. Come now. So that when the fourth cup, the cup of acceptance, is being received in celebration with Jesus, you will be there. Come and receive Christ by faith today. Let his blood be applied over your life. Let the judgment that rests upon you now be lifted and placed on Jesus on the cross. And the freedom of life in the resurrection be yours. Come to Christ today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? I want to pray. I want to pray for you who are wrangling with this decision, wondering if it's worth the effort to die to self and to forsake all others in order to follow Jesus. I want you to know it's so worth it. So, Father, even now as people are hearing your voice and sensing your presence and sensing your call, I pray, Lord, that you're pouring out faith and grace that they might be able to respond to you in the right way. And I pray, Lord, that they would put all their faith and hope in you who have sent your one and only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty of judgment for sin, to erase the debt that is held against us because of our sin, and to give us the righteousness of Christ our Lord. Resurrect us new by faith today in Jesus' name. And let the church be filled with people who have a servant's heart and attitude in word and in deed. And I pray it all to the glory of Christ our Savior. Amen.